As a church, it is our task to go through the whole counsel of God and to aid in that. In our church here today, we are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. Today, we have reached Lord's Day 37 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which you can find on page 554 of your Book of Praise. This continues the discussion about the third commandment, dealing specifically with oaths. In connection with that, we are going to be reading from Matthew 5, Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Lord's Day 37 asks the question, but may we swear an oath by the name of God, and in a godly manner? Yes. When the government demands it of its subjects or when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth to God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is based on God's word and was therefore rightly used by saints in the Old and New Testament. May we also swear by saints or other creatures. No, an old, a lawful oath is a calling upon God, who alone knows the heart, to bear witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such honor. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if any of you have watched a movie or a TV show with a courtroom scene in it, you'll probably be well acquainted with the phrase, do you swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God? The answer is usually, I do. Now, in today's day and age, people are given the option to simply affirm the truth if they don't want to swear by a deity that they don't believe in or if they have other reasons for doing so. But this question of telling the truth under oath with the threat of divine retribution is a question that has had a long history. However, there are those who reject such oaths. The Anabaptists were one such group. The Mennonite Church of Canada, as one offshoot of the Anabaptists, says on their homepage, we commit ourselves to tell the truth, to give a simple yes or no, and to avoid the swearing of oaths. In response to historic government demands to do so, they say, throughout history, human governments have asked citizens to swear oaths of allegiance. As Christians, our first allegiance is to God. In baptism, we pledge our loyalty to Christ's community, a commitment that takes precedence over obedience to any other social and political communities. So, we agree with much of what they say there, but what do we think about their basic premise behind that? How are we to understand Christ's demand for people's yes to be yes and their no, no? How do we understand the question of taking oaths in light of that? 
Today, we'll be looking at this passage under the following theme, to maintain fidelity and truth. With his opening words in our passage, Jesus Christ says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. With these words, he's paraphrasing many rabbis and teachers who had come before him, but he's also paraphrasing the words of passages like Numbers 30, verse 2 where we read, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. However, what follows these words is of shock value to some. Because Christ then says, but I say to you, do not swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair black or white. Rather, let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. That's pretty strong language. And we find similar language again in James 5, verse 12. Now, why do we hear this language? This is especially puzzling when God makes no statements anywhere else in Scripture that seems to show his displeasure with oaths. In fact, in many places, like Numbers 30, he details extensively what he considers to be appropriate oaths. What's going on? To begin with today, we'll take a look at the practice of taking oaths in the Old Testament. And then we'll move on from there. In the Old Testament, the practice of oath-taking was allowed as a means of strengthening your personal resolution to do something. You can find an example of this in Genesis 24. There, Abraham sends out his most faithful servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. In order to spur on this servant, he makes his servant put a hand under his thigh, which was a ritual back in the day, and then swear an oath that he would not find a, son, a, a wife for his son among any of the other women, but would find a wife for her among, his, among the people of God. He made him swear an oath to make sure, absolutely sure, that he would do so. Oath-taking was also calling upon a higher power in order to mediate and to punish when the other party couldn't necessarily carry out that punishment. You'll find an example of this in Genesis 21, where Abraham is speaking with Abimelech. Abimelech is a local king, and he meets with with Abraham because he sees how powerful Abraham is growing. And he says to Abraham, We're sharing the same territory here. I need to sit down with you and I need to swear an oath with you that you'll treat me with the same kindness that I have shown to you. So let's sit down and swear an oath together that this will be the case. And they do so. With Abimelech himself trying to enforce this oath, he might have a tough time because of the fact that he was indeed frightened 
of how powerful Abraham was getting. But Abimelech knew that if God was on his side, or at least that if Abraham swore by his God, he would have a lot more peace of mind. Oaths were extremely common in the Old Testament. Provisions for making them were, were found in God's law. And one might even say that oath-taking was encouraged on certain occasions. People would say, God do such to me, and more so if I do not whatever it is that they're going to do. But the difficulty was that it didn't remain that way. It didn't remain a calling upon God. The seriousness behind it was not accepted. As time progressed, people began to swear by other things, things that were created more and more. They also began to use oaths more casually as well. Oaths became a way to avoid responsibility as long as it was the right kind of oath. Jesus saw this happening more and more in his day. In fact, we only have to look at the 12 disciples, specifically Peter, to find a blatant misuse of the oath. For those of you who are perhaps a bit less familiar with this particular story of the Bible, I'll go over the details again. You can find the specifics of this event in Matthew 26. Jesus has just been betrayed to hostile authorities by his close friend Judas Iscariot. And the disciples, although they had promised that they would stay with Jesus until his death, they scattered and they ran. Peter, however, after running, decides to follow behind this crowd. He wants to see what will happen to his beloved master and teacher. Having an inn, he's able to get into the courtyard of the, pal- of the place where Jesus is being tried. But that's where the trouble begins. You see, the difficulty with being the follower of such a popular and charismatic preacher as Jesus Christ is that you become pretty recognizable. And in a situation where you're in the belly of the beast, surrounded by hostile people, being recognized would be a problem. Peter's warming his hands around the crackling fire in the courtyard and quietly maybe speaking with one or two people around when suddenly a maidservant speaks up and says, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. Peter responds, I don't know what you're talking about. And he moves a little bit further away so that he can gather less attention. He stands in the gateway. But even there, someone comes up to him and says, this fellow is also with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter responds with an oath this time. I don't know the man. Finally, someone points out to him, you must have been with him for your accent gives you away. You're a Galilean. Peter starts swearing and cursing and calling all manner of evil down on himself, all the while insisting, I don't know the man. Immediately suspicious, isn't it? When you ask someone a question and they immediately call on God as their witness, has God's truth, or so help me God, I didn't do it, I'm not that person, it's immediately suspicious. Because when someone calls on God so easily, 
so flippantly. People recognize that that person may not respect God enough to really hold on to the truth. Someone who's already acting suspiciously and then leans on the name of God to try defend themselves some more without even having been asked to do so, they become suspect of not only having done whatever it is that they've done or being whoever they are that the other person claims, but also of hypocrisy on top of that. Now, that was a problem in Jesus' day as well. It wasn't just limited to this particular disciple. This was a problem that extended throughout the Jewish population. People everywhere made oaths very easily, swearing by one thing or another. They are using them so flippantly in some cases that when the time came to fulfill what they had promised, then it was a common thing to say, oh, I can't fulfill my vow. I can't be taken responsible for that oath. I made that vow at a bad time in my life. Don't hold me accountable to that. It, was a, it just slipped out. I shouldn't have said it. This became such an issue that the Pharisees began to grade oaths on a scale. They said things like, if you swore by the temple, well, you're not as held to that oath as if you swore by the gold on the temple. Or, yeah, you swore by the altar? Okay, if you have to break your oath, I guess that's okay. It would be more binding if you swore by the sacrifice that was on the altar. The difficulty with that approach, apart from the fact that God demanded that his people fulfill the vows they make, was that now oath-breaking began to be graded on a scale as well. Oaths were no longer seen as something absolute. And once people started to swear by oaths, but not holding on, not holding on to them, once they were people that were seen as being part of the people of God, but they weren't holding themselves accountable to what they said, then that affected God's reputation as well. Imagine if you're a Roman soldier doing a business with a local Jew. The Jew makes a vow by one thing or another and promises that the goods will be delivered at this and this time. When it never shows up, you challenge him and he backpedals and says, oh, it was a mistake to make that vow. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I can't help you at this point in time. What kind of reflection would that be on the name of the God whom this person, this ostensibly religious person, represented? Sure, this man made a vow, and perhaps that made him seem pious at the time, but he didn't hold on to it. And this brings dishonor on the name of God. Because of this, Jesus says in Matthew 23, Woe to you blind guides! The Pharisees, he's speaking to them at this point in time. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that's on it, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. 
For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits in it. Jesus was very angry with people who were using loopholes to get away with what they swore they would do. He was also angry with those who considered oaths that were made on objects as lesser and more acceptable to break than oaths that were directed to God. He was angry that believers acting in this way were having a negative impact on the name of God. Integrity should mark the life of a believer. As a believer, those who are around you should know that your word is your bond. In your dealings with those around you, your character should be unimpeachable. You should be known as a person whose yes is worthwhile and whose no is steadfast. When you say yes, people should know that you'll stand by it. And when you say no, it means no. In our passage, we can see that this is true in the case of someone who simply uses the words yes or no. But this especially applies when you call on God as your witness. Because how you act after you have invoked the name of God has an impact on the name of God. And that's how this discussion of oaths connects to the question of the third commandment. Once you have invoked the name of God, his reputation is brought into the mix as well. In light of this passage, suddenly Jesus' words become much clearer. As we see only a few verses prior in our reading in Matthew 5, not too far before that, he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's referring also to those sections of the law on which people called on God by oath. You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. That is not the part that he took issue with. He didn't come to overturn the rules with regards to giving oaths. What he was doing was doing a firm, giving a firm across-the-board rejection of that flippancy that accompanied using oaths lightly in day-to-day affairs. Jesus didn't condemn oaths that were in the name of God. You'll notice that. When he's speaking here, he speaks about heaven, swearing by earth, swearing by the hairs on your head. He doesn't speak about oaths made to God. He condemned oaths that people let slip so easily off their tongues in day-to-day lives, swearing by heaven or by earth or by the hairs of their heads. He condemned them because people felt like they could get away with breaking those oaths more quickly than they could get away with breaking an oath to God. You had yes and no and yes and no. Okay, well, you can get away with that because you didn't really promise anything. And you had oaths that were on another level above. But 
you know, if you swore by the gold of the temple, or, or if you swore by the temple itself, you could get away with breaking that. But if you swore by God himself, you couldn't get away with breaking that. And so you want to go somewhere middling. But God is omnipresent. Heaven is God's throne. Swearing by heaven doesn't make you less answerable because God is still there and he is still holding you to integrity. Earth is God's footstool. It doesn't make you less answerable. You might think that you can get out of your obligations because of the fact that you didn't take an oath in the name of the Lord, but God's omnipresence will still hold you accountable. Your hairs on your head are under the control of God's providing hand. Them being on your head doesn't give you any more or less control over your vow. And shaving your head bald after you've already sworn by the hairs on your head doesn't get you out of your vow. In day-to-day affairs, integrity should mark the dealings, and therefore your yes should be enough, and your no should be enough. And yet there are times that O's are properly required and used. The Heidelberg Catechism speaks about how we are to do it in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth to God's glory and for our neighbor's good. We read in Hebrews 6, verse 16, men indeed swear, swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. We call on God to end all dispute. And this is reflected in the fact that we call on God to settle our cases in court, swearing to tell the truth. By telling the truth, we are giving glory to God as the ultimate giver of all truth. That truth is not something which can be seen in one perspective or seen in another. Truth isn't something arbitrary, but there is an ultimate lawgiver. There is an ultimate truth laid out by God himself. By telling the truth under oath, we're benefiting our neighbor, either to face the consequences of their actions, that is a benefit, or to rise to defense of those who are in need. And so we call on God in these times. Another situation in which we call on God is when we take office, promising for our neighbor's good that we'll carry out the task of our office diligently and to God's glory. Such oath-taking glorifies God and benefits our neighbor. It shows that God is the ultimate one to whom we are answerable without sinking to the flippant level that some people take oaths at. Because when you swear by God as you take office, even if you're in the highest office in the land and you have the most power of anybody around you, even if you're the highest official in the most powerful country in the world, you are saying by swearing your oath, I am still answerable. I am answerable to God. Oath-taking is not something to be taken lightly. So we must always use it with care. Always let it bring praise to God. But what about those times that we did break our oaths? 
but about those times that we did break our yes as a yes, our no as a no? What about those times that we didn't promote fidelity and truth? And people caught us out on it. And they knew that we were Christians. What about the times that it had an impact on the name of God? How often we've fallen in that regard. How many of us can see perfectly right now, 100% of the time, my word is my bond? How often have we not said, oh, that was a rash promise. I shouldn't have made it. Not thinking of the impact that our lack of Christian virtue would have on the name of God. We need to grieve these sins, brothers and sisters, for they are serious. These two affect other people's perception of our God. And therefore, it should bring us sorrow. But when this grieves you, don't forget the one who has taken the ultimate oath. Remember our God who made a promise to Abraham, saying that he would be the God of all who believe, according to the line of Abraham, which includes believers today. God, too, swore an oath. And God swore it on his own name. Because there was no one higher by which he could swear. We read in Hebrews, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, that's the unchangeable nature of his promise, he confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable or unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to take hold of that hope set before us. God's oath, God's promise is a refuge to which we can fly. And the hope that he offers for us to lay hold can be found in his very own son, his fulfillment of his oath, his fulfillment of his word. All of us are like Peter. Our oaths should have brought down all the disasters that he called upon himself on that fateful day. And yet, we can come before the Lord. Like Peter standing on the beach after Christ's resurrection, we can come to him, maybe with heavy hearts, but looking for mercy praying for his mercy. And because of his oath, and because of his mercy, we can rest in the assurance that if we confess him and confess that we love him, Peter, do you love me? You know I do, Lord. He will forgive us. More than that, he will fill us with his spirit, the spirit of truth. He'll grant us the one who will lead us in all truth, who will guide our paths and mark us with integrity. With him dwelling in us, our forgiveness becomes a chance at a new opportunity. We can lay down our brokenness. And we are given the chance for a new opportunity, a fresh start, 
a chance to get right with our fellow man and to demonstrate the truth and the love of God. Amen.